ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. How should we understand the Russian economy since Putin became president in 2000? Is it a failure? A petrostate or mere kleptocracy? Is it capitalist or some neo-Soviet hybrid? In his new book, Putinomics, Chris Miller examines the Russian economy and how it has fared since 2000. And contrary to most accounts, Miller argues that if you examine the Russian economy through the goals of the Putin government, it has been quite successful, despite corruption, cronyism, and its reliance on oil. So I decided to ask him why he thinks so. Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history in the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's the author of The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR. His new book is Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Here's Chris Miller. You have this new book, uh, Putinomics, and you're looking at the the Russian economy really since 1999 when Vladimir Putin became president of Russia and, of course, continues to be president at least for another six years. So I thought we'd start by by addressing one of the things you, you speak about at the beginning of the book is is how the Russian economy is under Putin is usually seen. And, and it seems to be, you know, most people either consider it as just simply as a failure um, or as some sort of neo-Soviet conglomeration, or simply as a mafia or a kleptocratic state. So I thought we we would start by having you um, talk about how you think we should look at and understand the Russian economy since 1999. Great. Well, those are definitely some of the the major uh, interpretive lenses, or you might say even tropes that. Americans often use to understand the Russian economy, and they you know, they all have a certain amount of truth to them. You know, when you call Russia kleptocracy, certainly it's true. There's a lot of corruption uh, from the highest levels down to the bottom. When you say that Russia is uh, neo-Soviet, you know, that's a, a bit less helpful, I think. But certainly the government does play a big role in the economy and an increasingly large role compared to a decade ago. Um, my other kind of favorite example is uh, U.S. Senator John McCain described Russia as a country masquer or as a gas station masquerading as a country, um, which is, you know, I think a good line. Uh, and certainly it's true that Russia depends very heavily on oil and gas for its government budget revenues and for its economy more generally. Um, but it seemed to me that all of these uh, different analytics, which we are quite used to hearing in the media and in analysis of Russia, uh, miss a lot of the interesting part of the story. And to me, there are, are two really interesting things that came out of my examination of, of how economic policy is made in Russia and what the results have been. And the, the first interesting thing is that, in fact, there is a, a very vibrant debate in Russia about economic policy. And it's a debate that takes place along lines that are 
not unfamiliar to us in America or people in other countries. Um, there are interest groups, there are different sets of ideas about what the government should do, about what the goals of economic policy should be. Um, and you can agree or disagree with how that debate has been resolved in the political process. But in terms of analyzing and understanding the inputs to that debate, um, a lot of that looks not all that dissimilar from other countries. Let me pause you there for a second, because I think this is a really important point you're making, because it also bleeds into other spheres of, uh, you know, policy with the Russian government, including foreign policy. And that is, you're right, when you look at the business press, like if you just take a newspaper like Vietnamisti, uh, you do see a lot of back and forth um, about, you know, th you know, the state's role, the role of regulation, the role of taxes, the relationship of businesses, uh, the welfare state. Uh, so you you definitely do get a lot of uh, debate going on, and it's important because you know, like a newspaper, as you know, a newspaper like Vietnamisti is is read by a lot of the Russian political and economic elite. That's right. And the the scope of topics that they're willing to report on uh, in the economic sphere is extraordinarily large. When you get to more politically sensitive topics, obviously you have. Uh, you know, some limits on what Russian reporters, even at the best uh, newspapers and media outlets are able and willing to touch. But on economic questions, taxation, pensions, things like that, um, the debate is more or less open, uh, which means as an analyst, you can actually get a pretty clear sense as to who is lining up on which side of the debates and what the arguments are. And, and when they're eventually resolved in one way or the other, you can figure out, well, why, why was that? So going back to your second point... <laughs> Sure. So the the second kind of main uh, conclusion from from my analysis of looking at Russian economic policy making is that the normal uh, conclusion in, in at least American and I think Western analysis more generally is that Russian economic policy has failed. Um, and obviously, you know, that question depends on how you define what its goals were. But it, it did seem to me that by uh, any assessment of of what the government's goals are. Um, how they've defined their goals over the past 20 years, they've actually succeeded. Um, now, we can agree or disagree about whether their goals are the correct goals, whether they've prioritized um, their aims properly. That's a political question. But based on um, their own goals, it seems like they've achieved more or less what they wanted to achieve. Not perfectly, obviously, with mistakes along the way. But broadly speaking, uh, it's difficult to argue that the, the Russian political system in aggregate um, has done a bad job at accomplishing what it wanted to accomplish on the economic front. And and this is something you point out. You you basically say that there is a strategy here, uh, and you you characterize it as a three pronged strategy. So talk about what that strategy is in relationship to the overall goal of of the Kremlin in terms of economics. Sure. So the the three prongs stated most simply are first, above all, prioritize macroeconomic stability. Uh, second. Um, to ensure social stability by targeted uh, social programs, uh, above all pensions are the, the main focus. And then third, uh, where it doesn't conflict with any other goals, uh, let the private sector uh, function. But obviously there are many places where in fact, uh, letting the private sector function does conflict uh, with other political goals. And the, the first prong of that strategy is in some ways the most important um in understanding how policy is made and it's interesting to ask well where did that come about why was it that russia's political elite today is more or less unified around the goals of keeping the budget deficit low um, of making sure that uh, monetary policy uh, is run in a pretty conservative fashion 
Um, it's kind of a surprise because in the 1990s, uh, the policy was the exact opposite. There was high inflation. There were large budget deficits. It was impossible to raise taxes. There were high demands for spending. Um, whereas today, Russia is in some ways a poster child uh, of the IMF when it comes to macroeconomic policy. Um, and so that's an interesting puzzle. How did that shift occur? And that's the thing. It seems that it, in you pointing this out, the, the, the overarching kind of theme um, of this three-pronged strategy is, I mean, first and foremost, of course, stability, whether that's economic or political stability. But I think in, in terms of uh, a political stability, this seems to be the, the overarching um, kind of concern, particularly in terms of uh, the stability of the state. Uh, as a as a general institution, um, so I I think to to one of the things you you point out quite clearly is to really understand how this three pronged strategy developed and and became institutionalized. We have to also think about the economy that Putin inherited. So when he came to power and when he was appointed prime minister and then appointed president and late 1999 and then elected president in 2000, what was the economy uh, he inherited and, and how did that, the experience of the 1990s, influence them going forward? There were a couple of key uh, challenges that um, any government who, that took power in 1999 or 2000 would have faced. The first uh, and the biggest problem in some ways was a, a budget deficit that had existed from uh, the late 1980s all the way through uh, the 1998 financial crisis, and it persisted despite changes in the political system when the Soviet Union collapsed. It persisted despite uh, different electoral cycles. It, it seemed impossible to close um, because there was huge demand for spending and zero ability on the government side to pay taxes uh, or to collect taxes. Um, and and so that created serious problems, both because the government was unable to, to balance its books and because the way that it addressed that problem was by printing money and thereby creating uh, a situation of, of inflation and at times hyperinflation. So that was the first dilemma uh, that, that Putin and his government had to try to resolve. Um, and then second, in addition to that, there was Russia was still in the midst of a, a pretty wrenching um, shift away from the economy that the Soviet Union had uh, had had in its final decade, an economy in which there were uh, many people working at industrial enterprises that were not profitable and had no hope of being profitable um, towards an economy in which prices today are basically freely set by the market. And the government owns businesses, of course, but it's nowhere near like the Soviet system where the government set almost every price. Um, and so the process of the late 1980s all the way through the 1990s and to a certain extent up to the present was a process of moving workers and moving capital away from uh, unprofitable enterprises and towards profitable ones. And of course, that sounds easy in practice, but in reality, that means layoffs, that means people moving between cities, that means factory closures, and these are extraordinarily socially and politically wrenching processes and processes that governments across the world uh, you know, struggle to deal with. They're not easy. And so managing both of those was a gargantuan task that uh, consumed politics in the 1990s and, and even well into the 2000s was a, a big issue for Russian policymakers. Listening to what you just had to say and thinking about it more broadly, it, it sounds like one of the problems in how we understand, for the lack of a better word, Russia's transition is based in the type of timeline we put on it. So in the sense of, I think there's a general sense that Russia's transition to capitalism was 
or a market economy was basically over in the mid 1990s. And what you're describing is actually a longer process, which really be, continues to bleed into at least the first, if not the second term of Putin's presidency. You know, it all depends on how you define the, the key variables of the transition, um, so to speak. So if you're looking at prices, you know, prices are, are more or less freed by January 1992, with a couple of exceptions, energy prices. Um, and that's a huge change. Uh, but that's not the only change that occurred. You also had the privatization process, and privatization is, um, you know, mostly done by the mid 1990s, and that's also a huge change. Um, but in addition to that, the the shift away from the old industries and the old sectors of the economy towards uh, newer ones that are more sustainable. There are places where that's still going on, where uh, the government, for social reasons or for political reasons, has decided to keep subsidizing. Uh, you know, factories in, in towns where there is only one factory. And so if that factory were to shut down, it would create the collapse of, of that town and force people to move elsewhere. Um, and so you can agree, is that the right or the wrong decision? And obviously it's a you know, complicated social and political calculus, uh, but that's a process that's taken uh, a quarter of a century and, and still persists to this day. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really important to remember at what, what the, the challenge that any government, let alone the Russian one, would have with trying to, you know, deal with the way the Soviet economy was just structured in terms of geography and space and trying to deal with these old factory towns and shifting the economy and also ch dealing with the populations that live there. Now, when we think of the, the Russian economy since 2000, of course, one of the main things, uh, and rightly so, is the idea of a state, the stronger state. And this is one of the things that Putin himself uh, made a point in when he came, became president in 2000. That is, the key to economic stability was a stronger government. And, and Putin, of course, famously, as we know, moved to basically reestablish the institutions of the state particularly in its role in the economy. So what role does the state play in the Russian economy? Well, it plays a, a tremendously important role, but a complicated one. And the role that it plays varies based on which part of the economy that you're looking at. Um, so one commonly cited metric is that the, the government accounts or state-owned businesses in aggregate account for something around 60 or 70% of GDP today. And that's roughly double the level uh, of, of what it accounted a decade or two ago. Um, so in some ways, that's a reversal of the, the uh, reforms of the 1990s that tried to privatize. We've had a reversal in that sense. Um, but there are, there are other ways in which strengthening the state is, um, you know, runs in a different direction. So for example, the government's ability to collect tax revenue is far stronger today than it was when Putin first took power. So that's a different type of state strengthening with different political ramifications, different economic ramifications. Uh, so I think when you're looking at the strength of the Russian state, it's crucial to break out what specifically you're looking at. And, and I would also add that when we look at the state, it's important to differentiate state from the political system. Um, you know, the Russian government often uh, elides the two concepts, and it's in its interest to do so. Uh, but it's a different thing to have a strong state. You know, Denmark has an extraordinarily strong state because whenever the state legislates something, that thing is almost always implemented. There's no question about, you know, will will local bureaucrats decide not to implement, or will they demand bribes to implement? Um, but that's different than having a strong government. Uh, so Russia has a a strong government because it's been able to keep power for 20 years, and looks like it'll be able to keep power for. The foreseeable future. Um, and so Putin's 
policies in the early 2000s were focused on both of those efforts, on strengthening the ability of the state to make sure that its writ was respected, but also in strengthening the ability of the government to stay in power uh, in a way that Yeltsin's government seemed to struggle to do um, throughout the 1990s. Do you, do you get the sense of, in terms of the economic debates uh, that are that are have been happening in Russia over the last decade or so, um, what is your sense of what the consensus is as in terms of the role of the state in the Russian economy? There are certain places where there is a consensus, and certain places where there's not a consensus. Um, one of the one of the more interesting. Um, conclusions that I drew from my, my research into the early 2000s economic policy um, was the, the interesting consensus between both the what you might call the liberal wing of Russian economic policymaking and also the more statist wing on the question of uh, raising tax revenue and particularly the question of Khodorkovsky, the, the Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the Russian oligarch and uh, owner of Yukos, the energy firm who was uh, had his firm seized from him and then he was jailed in the uh, in in the mid 2000s, and what's interesting about that is, you know, normally we see that only through the lens of Khodorkovsky's uh, threat to Putin's political role, or or Igor Sechin wanted to steal his assets, and both of those are certainly there. Um, but there's also a series of very interesting speeches that people like Alexei Kudrin uh, and others associated with him gave right after Khodorkovsky uh, was arrested, saying, you know, this is important because it sets a precedent that taxes must be paid. We interpret this through the through the question of the state's writ must be followed, and so there was a a, a portion of the um, the the liberal policymaking wing that read this as um, a, a important test case in making sure that the government could actually raise revenue. And if your goal was to balance the budget, and that's what Kudrin's goal was, you needed a strong state that could in fact raise revenue. And so taking down one or two oligarchs that weren't paying taxes. Um, was was seen as a way to do that, and obviously, you know, there's you know, multiple different factors involved in the Hodorkovsky case, but that was certainly one of them. That's interesting. So it, it also had a strong relationship to just general monetary policy and monetary stability. That's right, and and Hodorkovsky was seen by by some on the more liberal side as is not really a political threat. That was less important, but just a, a threat to the attempt to centralize um, financial and monetary decision making. Now, as you said, when we first started that one of the, the, the kind of tropes of, of looking at the Russian economy best summed up by uh, John McCain, that it's a, it's a uh, gas station masking as a country. Uh, but, you know, we cannot deny that, you know, oil and natural gas play, you know, really large roles in, in the economy and, and even more so, you know, 15 years ago. And in fact, that the high oil prices and high natural gas prices kind of fueled Russia's um, economic recovery in the 2000s. So talk about the, the rise of the centrality of oil and gas and how they fit into the overall Russia's economy up until the present. There were two big factors that uh, made oil and gas more important in the 2000s than they were in the 1990s. The first is that Russian oil output in particular increased pretty substantially. Um, beginning in the late 1990s up through the 2000s. And this was above all due to better management at um, oil companies, people, um, leaders of oil firms imported Western technology, they imported um, kind of world-class practices. And as a result, oil output increased uh, quite sharply. And one of the ironies is that one of the uh, oil executives who was most effective at this was in fact, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was a, um, a, a pretty aggressive business leader, but an effective one. 
Um, so you A, had this increase in oil output, which continued all the way up till a year or two ago. Um, and B, you had an incredible increase in the oil price um, from the early 2000s up until 2008. And so the combination of these two factors meant that inevitably oil would play uh, a far bigger role in uh, explaining Russian economic growth just because output's increasing, price is increasing. Um, and so that was just kind of a mathematical fact. Um, so it's, it's, you know, the, the dependence on oil and gas is usually or often used as a means of criticizing Russia. Um, and certainly it's true that Russia doesn't do enough to provide for a good environment for other sectors of its economy. But no matter who is governing Russia, Russia would be heavily dependent on swings in oil and gas prices just because they have so much of this stuff. It's, it's like Saudi Arabia or Norway, just the, the scale of their economy relative to the scale of their natural resource reserves are such that they're going to be dependent on oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And that's not a policy question. That's just a geological fact. But I have seen, I, I recently I saw a chart that says that uh, Russia's uh, natural gas and oil are decreasing in terms of its share of the economy. Is that due to just the economic situation of, of global oil petroleum products? Or is there a, a gradual shift of the economy into other sectors? No, that that's just a price movement. So since uh, 2014, prices have fallen. So just again, kind of as a as simple as a math equation, the, the role of oil is as a share of the economy falls, the role of oil revenues as a share of government budgets fall. And that's just kind of a, a fact that R Russia has to deal with. It's not really a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a reality. Um, and so I think a lot of analyses that try to uh, read a lot into that and, and use it as a, a lever for criticizing the government, you know, I, I don't understand the the meaning behind that, because any government that was sitting on so much oil would almost certainly seek to develop it and sell it abroad. And once you start doing that, then you're dependent on price fluctuations. But I was also thinking of the the the, the discussion within Russia and the attempts to to di more diversify the economy and whether they're they're able to eat, to move are they successfully moving in that direction or is it more a reflection of the you know like I said the oil market. Well, diversification is an interesting debate in Russia, and it it, it serves a variety of political purposes. Um, you know, if you think about what diversification means, it, it means you want non-oil parts of the economy to grow faster than the oil parts of the economy. Um, and so A, that depends a lot on the oil price. So if the oil price were to shoot back up again, um, you know, it's hard to, to a certain extent, it's hard to, to grow faster than a rapidly increasing oil price, as, as we saw in the, the mid 2000s. It was just kind of inconceivable that Russia's aerospace sector would be growing faster than the oil price was rising in 2005. Um, so it does depend a lot on oil prices. Um, but when you look at the rest of Russia's economy, um, you know, you, you certainly see an economy that is suffering from a poor investment climate. Neither Russians nor foreigners have a great desire to invest. You see a lot of red tape, kind of those standard complaints. But if you even if you were to presume that Russia was going to grow its non-oil part of the economy as fast as, say, the Czech Republic or Poland or pick a, an Eastern European country that you think is comparable, um, you know, you would certainly see a larger non-oil economy in Russia. But, you know, broadly speaking, oil would still be by far the, the biggest commodity produced and by far the biggest export. Um, so I think it's it's important not to overestimate the possibilities of diversification, not that Russia obviously shouldn't improve its business climate, but, you know, that's not going to mean that oil is is not going to matter just because Russia has so much oil. 
The other thing I, I, I you know, as, as someone who is an economist and kind of looking at things is, you know, Russia also seems to be in a difficult position vis-a-vis -vis its place in the world economy because, yeah, it could, you know, even if it wanted to get off of oil, um, it is in a global economy which has, is, has a lot of sharp competition. And, and the question is, you know, what could Russia make or produce that would be able to survive within a, you know, global free market setting without, of course, some, you know, heavy state intervention? So talk about place Russia's economy within this, this global and even regional uh, atmosphere. Well, I think you've, you've really touched on a key dilemma that Russia faces, which is that producing in Russia is not nearly as cheap as producing in, in low-cost Asian countries. So you're not going to manufacture textiles in Russia just because labor costs are too high. Um, but Russia has to compete with countries in Central and Eastern Europe, countries like Poland and Czech, and Czech Republic and Hungary, which are uh, deeply integrated with key European markets, which Russia is not. Um, and yet Russian workers are you know, the cost of a Russian worker is not that dissimilar from a worker in Poland or in the Czech Republic. So Russia does have a couple of export industries, um, aerospace, the defense sector, um, which have proven able to compete to a certain extent on global markets. But I think you're absolutely right. It, no matter what policies were put in place in Russia, it's hard to imagine a, a big flood of uh, manufacturers or service sector firms looking to relocate in Russia. Um, you know, there have been some success stories. There's I've been a fair amount of uh, car production that's moved to Russia over the past couple of decades, especially in the Kaluga region. Uh, pharmaceuticals are another uh, industry that's, that have done reasonably well. Um, but this is certainly a dilemma that, that the Russian government is acutely aware of. It's one thing to say we're going to try to attract new businesses or try to boost our non-oil exports, but actually doing that is you know, not an easy task. Um, and especially when you do face competition from countries on your border that are more closely integrated with the world's largest economies, uh, and you offer a similar price of labor and a similarly educated labor force to them, that's not an easy equation to, to resolve. Yeah, you know what, actually, one uh, interesting economic indicator I saw just last week was, um, and it's, it's interesting, because it, it harkens back to Russia, you know, almost like 150 years ago, and that is, it's actually um, exported more and more wheat and agricultural products, which I, I found, uh, you know, I shouldn't say surprising, but I didn't know about because these things usually aren't heavily reported. So that, it seems right. like they're making yeah. some headway in, in at least in terms of, you know, export of agriculture. And one of the ironies is that this has been possible in part because of the uh, devaluation of the ruble and import substitution since 2014, which made uh, Russian costs uh, fall in dollar terms. So you still sell wheat uh, priced in dollars, but the cost of Russian workers in dollars is now half of what it was in 2014 before the oil price crashed. So in, in some ways, the decline in the oil price and the decline in the ruble has actually helped uh, certain export industries. So one of the, the other pillars of, of this economic strategy, of course, is providing for some sense of social and out of that uh, political stability. And that is, of course, focused on, you know, social spending in terms, particularly one of the big things that's in Russia is debates over the pension and, and other benefits. Um, so where does social spending fit within the, the Russian economy overall? Social spending has been hugely important, both in, in economic terms, also in social terms, and, and then finally in political terms. 
Um, in, in economic terms, Russia spends a lot of money on pensions. And because it has a, a very rapidly aging society, its pension burden is only going to increase. So there's a lot of debates about how to deal with that. Do you increase taxes? Do you cut benefits? And that's obviously a complicated debate. Um, in social terms, pensions are also hugely important because almost all Russians of pension age, 60 for men, 60, 55 for women, uh, get most of their, if not all of their income in retirement from the government pension. So there's not a big system or a big tradition of private savings, which means that if you do cut pensions, it's extraordinarily, uh, it has an extraordinarily large effect on, on most elderly Russians. And then finally, politically, um, the government has realized correctly that uh, there are many things that Russians won't protest, but pension cuts are one that they will protest. And there was an uh, important uh, case study in the mid-2000s when the Russian government changed the way that it provided uh, social benefits, especially for the elderly. And the elderly didn't like that. And they took to the streets to protest. And uh, there was actually a quick policy change in many provinces um, as a result of that. So the Kremlin has realized that uh, it needs to make sure it doesn't anger pensioners. And in fact, if it increases pensions before uh, elections, they can get them out to vote in its favor. Yeah, that that case in 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 the mid two thousands and the monetarization of of in kind benefits was a really interesting moment because, as you said, you particularly the 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 city of Moscow went flipped one hundred and eighty degrees and and Lushkov actually reinstituted a lot of the in kind benefits rather quickly after you had you know old people in the streets even some confrontations with the police. Wayne, what's really interesting from a a political perspective is why is it the case that people are willing to protest pension cuts, but they're far less willing to protest uh, cuts to health spending or to education. So we've seen um, at best stagnant or probably in some cases declining health and education spending over the past couple of years. If you look at the number of hospitals, the number of schools, they're all declining. Um, and there's probably you know, some argument for changes in the, in the health system and the education system, but uh, by, by no metric is Russia investing a lot in, in either health or education. And yet those have with a couple of exceptions, uh, not sparked any type of protest and certainly no politically uh, significant protest, which is an interesting contrast and which explains why the government spends a lot of money on pensions, but not a lot on education. So, you know, so far we've talked a lot about the Russian economy in the large sense. Um, but one of, I think, one of the successes of of the economy under since the 2000s or in the 2000s is it really did raise enough of the Russian population to a standard of living that was really unprecedented uh, in Russia's history. So what is the experience of the economy like for, you know, the for 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 Russians in terms of labor, in terms of livelihood and, and the standard of living um, under this economic system? Well, I think that the first key thing is to differentiate between the, the two different decades of, of Putinomics. So the first decade from roughly 2000 to uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis was extraordinarily good um, because the economy was growing so rapidly, often 6-7% a year. Uh, incomes grew at a similar level, um, and that was just because labor markets were tight and companies needed to compete for wages, so they offered big wage increases. And at the same time, if you were a pensioner, during that time period, the government uh, had a lot of additional money flowing in, so increased pensions at times at double-digit rates. Uh, so pretty incredible, um, you know, in comparison to most other countries in the region which were trying to cut pensions at the time. So the average Russian in the 2000s 
uh, experienced very significant increases in living standards. And at the same time, uh, and, and no less important, compared to the previous decade, the 1990s, there was much more of a sense of stabilization too. So where the 1990s were a period where incomes were in certain cases falling, or at least they were very variable and where employment um, seemed like it was constantly at risk. In the 2000s, everyone could find a job. And if you had a job, your wages were rising quite rapidly. Um, so there were two things to be satisfied with. Since the, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, the picture has been much more mixed uh, for a variety of reasons. One is just that the, the low hanging fruit of economic growth was picked in the, the 2000s. So there weren't nearly as many uh, easy wins. Second, because the oil prices were um, much more variable. It wasn't just a steady increase like you saw throughout most of the 2000s. And third, because uh, some of the steps that the Russian government took to improve the business climate in the uh, early and mid 2000s began to be reversed um, in certain cases. And so as a result, economic growth since uh, the financial crisis has been much more mixed. Um, hardly ever as high as it was in the mid 2000s. And there's been uh, not only the recession after 2008, but also the uh, recession after 2014 meant that living standards have still on aggregate increased a little bit, but not nearly as much. And there certainly aren't, uh, there certainly wasn't a period of rapid growth sustained over multiple years. So since 2008, uh, living standards have, um, have begun to stagnate to a certain extent. Um, but the important thing from a political perspective is that um, for better or for worse, the Russian people seem to still be remembering the 2000s uh, when they consider their government's economic performance. So everyone benchmarks uh, to, to 1998 and says, well, it's still better than 1998. And in the 2000s, I, my wages increased a lot or my pension increased a lot. And so as a result, even though the past decade has been a bit more mixed, uh, the general conclusion is one of relative satisfaction with the government's job. Right, right. I, I, you know, this actually makes me think of wonder if there is this, uh, you know, you can make a similar comparison, say, with Americans uh, remembering of the 1990s in the United States and the ability to basically, um, you know, adjust to the slowdowns of the 2000s. I, I wonder how much, you know, and I'll put it this way, you know, in Russia, there's, and the government plays this a lot where, um, you know, the 1990s is a, is a way to kind of justify the can the continuance of the Putin system and, and the economy, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I wonder if if it's actually not so much the memory of the 1990s in Russia, as it is the memory of, of the good years of the 2000s that are actually more potent politically for for many Russians. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to phrase it, and it's I think hard to to differentiate in many cases um, when when people look at the 1990s. In some ways, I think people overestimate how bad they were, in part because the comparison with the 2000s is so stark. Um, when you actually dive into the economic data on wages, for example, it, it's it, you know, the data is complicated because inflation was so high, um, but it's it's probably not the case that. Um, you know, Russians, I think, overestimate how bad the 1990s was, which isn't to say that there weren't, you know, very serious economic problems. But the the contrast of the 2000s is so stark that it makes it easy to do that. So you you mentioned 2008, and and 2008, the 2008 economic crisis is such a, a important pivot for for many countries. I mean, in here in the United States, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion as to what this means and how to deal with it. And I think in 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 our understanding of Russia, at least in a kind of general journalistic sense, 2008 doesn't really um, 
come up as often. So what was the experience of the 2008 economic crisis in Russia and how did the government deal with it? Well, unlike in the United States, unlike um, to a certain extent in Europe, the, the key problem for Russia in 2008 wasn't actually the financial crisis. So it, it wasn't that uh, global capital flows were um, you know, being threatened by bank collapses. It, it wasn't by uh, credit crunch. It was actually oil prices. Um, so certainly there was an effect, um, a direct effect from when American banks started freezing up uh, and lending to Russia. But the, the bigger effect was actually that oil prices uh, first rose very rapidly in the first part of 2008 and then fell extraordinarily sharply in the second half of 2008. Um, and so really 2008 is, is best interpreted not as a financial crisis in Russia, but as an oil price crash. That's the, the easiest way to, to see it. And it was, there was aspects of both, but by far the most important factor was the decline in oil prices. Um, and so a, as a result of that, Russia faced a lot, uh, a significant reduction in its export revenue and, and therefore had to cut back on its spending. Um, so wages declined. So the government uh, faced a growing budget deficit, had to take measures to deal with that. Um, and as the economy slowed and then eventually went into recession, um, you had kind of the standard problems that you face in recession. So factories begin closing, unemployment rises, uh, businesses and banks uh, face bankruptcy, and the government has to decide whether or not to bail them out. Um, so the, the government's response to the crisis actually looked rather similar to what we saw in the United States, even though the causes were fairly different. Um, so, for example, there were a number of big banks in Russia that were bailed out, and there's debate to this day about whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision, and whether it could have been done in a way that would have minimized the cost to the taxpayer. Um, but the the dilemma for Russian policymakers was the same that uh, U.S. policymakers faced, which is w whatever mistakes the banks made in the past, um, you know, letting them collapse might actually make the crisis worse. Um, and so, as a result, the Russian government stepped in and, and bailed out a number of big banks, as well as less justifiably a number of uh, other companies that had owners who were close to the the political elite. Yeah, it's actually interesting now that the the head of the Russian Central Bank is now allowing going through and allowing the closure of a lot of banks, at least a lot of the smaller ones that aren't really economically viable. That's right, and and there's an interesting political backstory behind that because a lot of these smaller banks are are actually not really banks; they're they're actually more kind of money laundering operations. Um, so it's, it's not actually economically uh, significant whether they're operational or not, but it is significant in terms of uh, clamping down on, on money, on flows of money that the government doesn't want to tolerate. And for a long time, that wasn't possible. And there was actually a, a case of a Russian, a Russian central bank official being assassinated as a result of a crackdown on uh, banks or, uh, about a decade ago. Uh, but now it seems to have the strong support of the president. And as a result, you had a, uh, a very sharp decline in the number of banks in Russia. So, what what about corruption? Um, because this is another thing that you know we all know and hear about, and it's a serious issue within Russia. What is the place of corruption in in the economy? How does it drag the economy? But in some ways, how does it also you know sustain it? Because, like for example, if you look at the literature, like um, on um, by Elena. Uh, Oh, now her name is 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 skipping me. Um, who's looking at so, who, the, the, some of the literature on um, uh, networks and things like this? One of the things that corruption provides is kind of a way to get things done. Um, so, what is the role of what role does corruption play in this economic system? Well, I think to, to answer the question, the first thing we need to do is differentiate between different types of corruption. 
Um, and Russia has multiple types, as, as do many countries. Um, so first, there's kind of the, the lowest level corruption. So you're stopped by a traffic cop who says that you're speeding and you pay him 20 bucks to let you go. Um, that's, that's kind of the lowest level of corruption. Now you could ask, what effect does that type of corruption have on the economy? And the answer might actually be not that much because you're not going to reduce the amount you drive probably um, as a result of that. So actually, that might just be a, a transfer program from citizens to the, the traffic police. Um, it might be, you know, it might be illegal. It might be frustrating. Is it economically significant? Well, maybe not. Um, when you get up to corruption that businesses face in the low level, that's where you start to see an economic impact. So, for example, imagine a trucking firm facing a shakedown by uh, by local police. Well, if that slows down their operations, if that prevents them from operating certain routes, then suddenly you do have a pretty significant economic impact becoming visible. And, and certainly Russia faces pretty serious problems with, with that type of low-level business corruption. So paying bribes to get your fire permit approved, um, having to to, to agree to a kickback scheme with a local governor to get your business registered, things like that um, do indeed have a, a pretty strong effect because they discourage you from starting new businesses. They discourage businesses from expanding. Um, if your business looks like it's doing too well, the cost of uh, the bribes you have to pay might increase because bureaucrats think they can extort you for more money. And so that's quite damaging. Um, and then you get to the, the higher level stuff where the numbers are not in the, the hundreds of the thousands, but the millions or uh, potentially even in the worst cases, the billions. And this is where you know you have Putin's judo buddies who are, are now billionaires who are uh, making their money almost entirely by uh, owning companies that sell goods to the state or to state-owned companies. And so you know obviously these contracts are far from transparent and uh, the government loses by almost any any sort of realistic estimate in the billions um, each year due to uh, procurement contracts that are, uh, that are not based on market prices and that are essentially transfer schemes from the government to uh, various oligarchic groupings. So, so in terms of like international investment, uh, you know, international um, corporations coming in, investing and establishing, uh, you know, business in Russia, is there concerns more in that mid-level corruption in terms of having to deal with, say, local governors, give kickbacks, play, you know, pay bribes to get certain licenses and things like this, and less the high level corruption that you're describing, which is based on state contracts, that's almost like an internal sphere of its own. Um, is, that, is that a correct assessment or is it much more complicated? Well, I'm assuming it's much more complicated, but. <laughs> no, I, generally I think that that's right. The one um, other thing to flag is that the corruption of the judicial system and the prosecutorial service um, means that it's, it's possible for powerful figures to use the judicial system to seize assets from other people. Um, so to seize businesses, this is what happened to Khodorkovsky. This is what happened to um, Vladimir Yevtushenkov, the owner of Sistema, who lost a oil firm called Bashnaft a couple of years ago, also uh, to Igor Sechin. Um, now this happens a lot less frequently to, um, to foreign firms just because they're able to mobilize the support of their embassy. They're able to mobilize uh, the Russian government in certain cases to support them against uh, local bureaucrats or provincial governors. Uh, so rating is, is a problem that's more faced by Russian businesses. But certainly, uh, you know, if you're going to spend $100 million building a factory in Russia, you want to be sure that you're going to remain the owner of that factory. Uh, and to the extent that uh, corruption in the judicial system does uh, decrease the security property rights, that almost certainly has an effect on willingness to invest, especially if you're deciding, do I invest in Poland or do I invest in Russia? 
I'm quite confident of the security of my property rights in Poland. I'm less confident in Russia. Labor costs are pretty similar. So that's an easy decision to make. Yeah. yeah. So by, by most indicators, you know, the Russian economy has lost, you know, a lot of its dynamism of the 2000s. A lot of this, of course, has to do with oil prices, but you have a, a bunch of other kind of, you have external uh, stresses, you have sanctions, you have um, the international situation, tensions with, with the West and the United States in particular. Um, and the economy, you know, seems to have kind of stalled. Uh, for all intents, uh, for lack of a better term. So what are some of the issues confront this thing you call Putinomics? Well, there, there are, I think, two main issues. Um, first is that the, the things that Putinomics were good at, and that means above all, stabilizing the macroeconomic system, which they did very effectively in the 2000s, are, are not the key problems Russia faces today. So the, the key problems that Russian business faces are the things like getting, uh, you know, getting your your fire permit approved, you're getting your business registered, and that's something that Foodnomics has proven unable to address. In part because there are a lot of people at the mid to lower levels of the system that benefit from these types of schemes. So, in terms of improving the business climate, um, you know, there's there's no real reason to be optimistic that that's going to happen. And so if if you're not going to improve the business climate, you're not going to get more investment, you're not going to get more economic growth. That's a uh, that's an unfortunate reality, and it's hard to see that changing. Um, and then a, a second broader factor is I think that the the political coalition that came up through the 2000s and persists to this day is probably not the coalition that you'd want if you were trying to implement reforms to increase economic growth. So for example, state-owned companies play an enormous role in the political system. Uh, you know, State-owned companies are probably a major drag on economic growth because they drain money from the budget, they waste it. Um, and so it's, it's hard to imagine a big shift uh, in economic policies with the given political coalition. Um, but it's also hard to imagine a shift in the political coalition too. And so that's the dilemma that, that Russia faces is that it, it has a, a political elite that did a reasonable job in the 2000s. You can obviously debate a lot, but overall, um, you know, they, they, they tackled some of the big issues Russia faced from an economic perspective. But today, the, the sets of issues have shifted, um, but the same people remain in charge and the same groups remain influential. And they don't have that much interest in, in improving the business climate or in uh, investing more in health and education to have a better educated and more productive workforce, because those aren't issues that really matter to them, even though they matter a lot to other Russians. Um, so going forward, it's difficult to see Putinomics succeeding at sparking economic growth, but it's also difficult to see any sort of shifts in what Putinomics entails just because the people who are deciding what it entails are the same people who were there in 2000. That was Chris Miller, an assistant professor of international history in the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's the author of The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR. And his new book is Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, published by the University of North Carolina Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. 
Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. in life for free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money that's what I want that's what I want that's what I want your love gives me such a thrill but your love won't pay my bills I want money I can't use, I want money.